Before he was born, the angels told Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 that he would sit on the throne of his father, David, and that he would enjoy an eternal reign as king. Shortly after his birth, shepherds were in the field and the angels appeared to them in Luke 2 and verse 11 and said, Today in this city is born a savior, which is Christ the Lord. The first time we read about him going into the temple with his parents in Luke chapter 2, one of God's faithful and devout servants, a man named Simeon, looked at the child and said that he is God's salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Another servant on that same occasion said his birth would be for the rise and fall of many nations. When you think about everything that was said about Jesus and his life and his birth by angels, prophets, spokesmen of God, and even heaven itself at his baptism, as God declared, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. You can imagine being a Jewish person and sitting on the edge of your seat as finally all of your dreams are coming true. Finally, the Messiah has come into the world. But it wasn't just the things that were said about him. It was the things that he did. He preached like they had never heard anyone preach before. They were astounded and they hung on his every word. He performed miracles. And even when the demons came out, they would cry out, this man is the Messiah, the son of God. He strengthened the limbs of the paralyzed. He raised the dead. He multiplied fish and loaves. And they were impressed with what he did. Not only that, he stood up to the political bullies and religious elite of his day. And he challenged them. Often he told his disciples in spurts and in various speeches that he would one day die. But you could imagine they were so caught up in all that was going on. They had no time to contemplate that. All they knew is finally God had broken into their world and things had changed. And now they were on the winning team. Things were going their way and they would succeed. And then just about as soon as it happened, it ended. This man who had hushed the sea, raised the dead and walked on water was betrayed by one of his own was given into the hand of the Roman authorities, was crucified. This powerful, omnipotent servant of God, this prophet, was killed and seemed to be helpless. All of his disciples fled, and as you could imagine, in that moment, they no doubt believed that all of the words of the prophets, the angels, Simeon, and the others were dashed, and so were their hopes on that Friday night. Saturday, nothing happened. And then Sunday, just like he told them he would, he rose from the dead. Luke chapter 24 tells us. And in the first 12 verses, he appears to some women and he tells them to go and spread the news. But the news is not traveling fast enough, which brings us to our lesson tonight. In Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, Jesus encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One's name is Cleopas. The other is an unnamed individual. But here's what we know. They were discouraged about Jesus, who they believed to be the Messiah or at least the special prophet of God. But now he had died and they hadn't received the news of his resurrection. And so they were discouraged. The text says they were 60 stadia or seven miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus encounters them on the road. He gives them hope. He changes their perspective so that they might be blessed by the resurrection. You know, we're not too far removed in time. We might be, but in circumstance, we're not. We often sometimes hang our heads low. We're often discouraged in life and we fail to truly be blessed by the things that we just sung about a moment ago that Jesus laid in the grave. But up from the grave, he arose by the power of God. How can you and I be blessed by the resurrection? Tonight, I want to look briefly at four things from Luke 24, 13 through 35, as we examine this text and these two disciples and what Jesus did for them in conversation and how he blessed their lives. And maybe when we find ourselves in the same situation. We might be blessed as well. Number one, you and I can be blessed by the resurrection when we realize that a partial knowledge destroys our hope. 
Jesus appears to these men. You remember on the road in the text that was read for us a moment ago, and they don't know who he is. And he approaches them and he says, he hears them talking about things among themselves. And he says, what are you talking about among yourselves? And they tell him, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? And don't you know all the things that have happened? Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in word and deed. He was the one that we thought would rescue Israel. But in verse 20, they say, The rulers took him and crucified him. And they say, we thought that he was the one that might be the hope of Israel. And they're discouraged. And they tell him some of the women that are with us said that they went to the tomb and that they were told by angels that he was resurrected. And some of ours went to the tomb and we didn't see him. And this has been the third day since these things transpired. They are hopeless. They're discouraged. And it's because they only have a partial knowledge of the facts. They don't realize that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so they're discouraged. We won't be blessed by the resurrection unless we get this point that a partial knowledge, only knowing some of the facts, will ultimately destroy our hope. They believe that Jesus was still in the grave. And so because of that, they were discouraged, ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel and quit. But they didn't have to be. If you look at the text in verse 19, in their mind, Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And that was true. But that was only half of the story. They didn't realize That not only was he a prophet, but that his suffering was not against the plans of God. It was a part of it. The cross didn't stop God's plan. It actually inaugurated God's plan as Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 and verse 20. But these men, they had no idea. They're without hope. You know, the Bible calls Jesus our hope in first Timothy chapter one and verse one. It says hope is an anchor for the soul in Hebrews six and verse 18. But we won't have it if we only have a partial knowledge of God's word and of God's works. William Sittis is probably one of the smartest people in the history of the world. We know some smart people, but he was far smarter than any of them. I would imagine he could read the New York Times when he was 18 months old. When he was eight years old, I'm not going to get all of these, but he knew Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, Russian, Armenian languages. By the time he died, he knew over 40 different languages. He was accepted into Harvard at the age of 11. But upon his graduation, he took a job as a bookkeeper. Sometimes he would work as a clerk. And whenever his identity was discovered, he would just go to another place. He died at 46 years old in obscurity, isolated and alone. He was brilliant. But he only had knowledge of one sort. We might say in book smarts, in one avenue. But he really couldn't relate with people and integrate his life into the common populace of people. And so he suffered. If we only know some of the truth, but we don't know all of it, we'll be ruined by this as well. You probably know this phrase. It became popular a few years ago, this idea of fake news. What is fake news? It's something that's not true or partial information. And if it's given about someone or something, it can lead to a great deal of damage. But, you know, according to this text, it's not just fake news. That's a problem. It's also fractured news. They were right about Jesus being crucified, but they were wrong about it, dashing Israel's hopes. This was a part of God's plan and not contrary to it. And they needed to see this. We live in a world that profits on only telling us half of the story. And that story, that half is always the bad half. That's always introducing the negative and attempting to discourage us. And we may be like these men and say, well, I thought life would be better. I thought things should be good. And Jesus is saying, I want you to look up and see things as they truly are. Yes, the world is soiled with sin. First John five nineteen. But that's not the whole story. God is still good. Nahum one in verse seven. He still gives good gifts. James one in verse 17. He daily loads us with benefits. Psalm 68 in verse 19. There is one half of the story. But if we would be people that would be blessed by the resurrection, we must know the other half as well. 
These men were downtrodden and they were discouraged because they weren't familiar with all that God was doing in their world. Hosea said in Hosea four and verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But it's just it's not only the people that are destroyed, but also our hope. If Job had one flaw, this was it. Partial knowledge of what God was doing in his life almost caused him to renounce his faith in God and curse his maker to his face. He was close if you read the book. And what does God say when he appears to Job in Job 38 and verse two? Who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge? What was that? Job didn't have the knowledge that he needed. He had a partial knowledge. Somebody says, well, wait a minute. Job didn't know about chapters one and two. Yes, that's the point. It's to say to you and to me, beware of making decisions about God and viewing God through a lens when you and I may not have all the facts. He thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we often don't comprehend. Job 37 and verse 5. Beware of making up your mind about God and his love for you based on the times in which you spend in the valley. Based on whether or not God answers your prayers in the exact way that you believe that he should. Romans 9 and verse 20 says, will the thing formed say to him that formed him, what are you doing? Partial knowledge almost destroyed these men's hope. They had every reason in the world to have their hopes up in their heads as well. But they were discouraged. And it's because they only knew half of the story. Number two, we'll be blessed by the resurrection when we possess heaven's perspective by faith. Look at the text. Jesus says to him in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. He expounded or interpreted the scriptures concerning himself. I think this is impressive. Jesus calls them fools. He puts them on the same level as unbelievers that don't believe in God. Psalm 14 and verse one says the fool is said in his heart. There is no God. The same thing is said about the church at Galatia. Galatians 3 and verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus has been evidently set forth as crucified? They should have known better and they didn't. And Jesus noticed the text. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You see, they only knew part of it. Jesus says there was more. Didn't you see that? Didn't you know it? And he starts to teach them. I think it's interesting that Jesus believes in this moment with just the Old Testament scriptures alone, he's able to get them to the truth about the Messiah, which is himself. He's able to start there and point them in the right direction. Romans 15, 4 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. He's able to look at the, that Old Testament and say, you guys missed it. You're discouraged. You thought the Messiah shouldn't die. But that was a part of God's plan. And he starts in the Old Testament and he walks them back. The text says he begins with Moses and all of the prophets in the same chapter in Luke 24 and verse 44. The Bible says Jesus told his disciples later on. Christ had to suffer these things and to rise from the dead and that all things which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms had to be fulfilled concerning himself. Jesus says those passages in your Old Testament were ultimately about me. He walks them through the scriptures. The text says he begins in the law of Moses and then zeroes his way out into the prophets. What passages do you think Jesus used? We don't know. But which ones do you think he might have used to say the Messiah had to suffer? Maybe he started in Genesis three fifteen. And he said, listen, the serpent's head had to be crushed, but the seed's head had to be bruised and started to explain to him what God was working out from the beginning. And maybe he went to Second Samuel seven, where David's told one day you'll have a descendant and he'll sit on your throne and his reign will be forever. 
Or maybe he went to Psalm 22, the famous words that Jesus uttered from the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And showed them that, yes, that Psalm pictures him abandoned at first, but ultimately rescued in the end. As God says, I'm with you and I'll defend you. Maybe he went to Psalm 16. Psalm 16:10, where David says concerning Christ, you won't leave his soul in the grave in Hades or allow your holy one to see corruption. Maybe he went to Isaiah 53. And so you see the servant bruised and crucified but ultimately resurrected. Maybe he went to Jonah, Jonah 117 and said, just like Jonah was thrown into the fish's belly for three days and was spit out on dry land, the son of man entered into the heart of the earth and then he rose from the grave. This is what we know. Jesus was teaching these men how to study the Bible and he'll teach us too if we'll let him. We need to possess heaven's perspective by faith. If we'll be blessed by the resurrection, we need God's glasses on to see the world as it really is. And Jesus says your hearts are unhealthy and your minds are foolish because you're judging the world based on what you see and not based on what God has said. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are his thoughts over our thoughts and his ways above our ways. But, you know, ultimately, God wants to bring us up to his ways and to his thoughts. And so he's given us divine revelation. Recently, my family and I, we went to a football game. We went to see the Titans play. And I would say we had what I would call budget seats. What does that mean? Budget seats means we went to the game, had a good time hot dog and a drink, but we weren't in the splash zone, if you know what I mean. You know, we went and we we had, listen, if there was a play in that game where they had a discrepancy and they couldn't tell whether or not, did he have one feet in or two? I know what they weren't going to do. They weren't going to say, hey, you in the 300 section, can you come down and tell us whether he, his feet were in or out? You know what they would have done? There were people close up on the action. There are people that can see things. There were people that were close there. They would call them in. They would look at the cameras because people had a better view. Now, here's the question in your life and mine. Who has a better view of your life? You or God? Second Chronicles 16, 19 says his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. He knows the end from the beginning. Psalm 46 and verse 10. You can't hide from him in Sheol or in heaven. Psalm 139 And so we need to possess heaven's perspective. Jesus is saying to these disciples, if they'll listen to him, see things like I want you to see it. See it as you look at the scriptures and see what God's plan ultimately is. And we need this same reality in our lives. In our lives, we should be careful not to judge the scriptures based on our circumstances, but instead to judge our circumstances based on what the scriptures teach. One man said every morning when we wake up, the first thing that we should do is start talking to our hearts, not listening to them. Your heart makes a great student, but it's a terrible teacher. We should start out early in the morning saying to ourselves, you don't get to decide how we're going to behave today. That's my job. Look at Psalm 42. Hold your hand in Luke 24 and see an example of this in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is discouraged. He's having a difficult time. But notice how he trains his heart. He refused to be a slave to his heart. Instead, he instructs it. And so in Psalm 42, in verse five, he doesn't listen to his heart. He talks to it. Psalm 42, 5, and in Psalm 43, 5, it's the same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my salvation and my God. He starts to walk back as he faces problems. Instead of saying, I'm defeated, I'm a loser, I'm I'm quitting. He says, why are you cast down? Why are you thinking like that? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. That's where your true confidence comes from. Talk to your heart. Don't listen to it. Let the scriptures determine how life's going, not life circumstances. 
And we'll be challenged in this regard. These men thought that they saw their Savior killed and their hopes dashed. But Jesus wanted them to know they weren't losers who had missed out, but they were victors who had cashed in. And so we're faced with choices. Is it really more blessed to give than it is to receive? The world might say absolutely not. But Acts 20 and verse 35 says, yes, it is. You need heaven's perspective. I'm going through a lot. I'm suffering terribly. Are you sure that my afflictions are light and momentary? It seems like they're here to stay. Second Corinthians four says you need heaven's perspective. They won't last long and they're not as heavy as they appear. Are you sure, Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are incomparable with the glory that shall be revealed? Romans eight and verse 18 says that's true, regardless of what we suffer. That doesn't minimize our hardships and suffering. It maximizes our view of who God is. Jesus says to these men, you've got to look at it from heaven's point of view. Foolish flow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. This is how it was always supposed to be. Listen to God's word. Don't listen to your heart. Talk to your heart with the scriptures. See it from God's perspective. Here's number three. You and I will be blessed by the resurrection when we penetrate our heart with scripture. Jesus pretends as if he's going to lead these men and depart. He's going to go further and they beg him to stay with them and in their company. And he does. And then he breaks bread in their presence and they recognize who he is and he vanishes from their sight. And then in verse 32, they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us, by the way, and when he opened up to us the scriptures? What made the difference in their lives? Their hearts were penetrated by the scriptures. So much on this occasion should have been familiar to these men. They should have recognized Jesus, but they didn't. But it was when Jesus opened up to them the scriptures that the light bulbs went off for them. We'll be blessed by the resurrection, by what Jesus did for us when the same thing happens with us. Jesus appears to us not in physical form today, but ultimately through the Bible. Jesus was showing these men as he was expounding Moses and the prophets that the Old Testament was more than just historical documents for Israel. It was the roadmap that was ultimately to lead them to their God. And he starts expounding to them the scriptures so that they might see God for who he truly is. We need to let the scriptures change us. Matt Smether said, let every Christian pray this prayer. Lord, help me not to be the kind of Christian who loves to learn but hates to change. You know, if we're not careful, we can love to study the Bible and church history and come to Bible classes and love to just gather a whole lot of knowledge. But if we're not changed by it, it's all in vain. Help us not to be the kinds of Christians that love to learn for learning's sake but aren't really changed. Twenty years down the line, we're in the same place we were to begin with. The scriptures penetrated their hearts. They had heard these passages in synagogue their whole lives. But now it was different because the risen Jesus was preaching to them. And as these words invaded their lives, they started to see. Don't you see the light bulbs going off in their mind as Jesus breaks bread and they realize there he is. He's not in the grave. Just like he said, he rose. Our lives need the same reality. You know, I hope you read the Bible, but I hope you read it for more than just to say, you know, I'm going to keep my New Year's resolution. It's more than that. I hope we're challenged by the word of God and challenged enough to allow it to seep deep into our hearts so that we don't miss out like these almost did. Somebody says the truth doesn't change. That's right. But we do. And so we need to continue to go back to the Bible and allow it to change us. You know, this is true. You've watched movies before and you saw it the first time and you saw it one way and then you saw it again. And it was totally different. Right. The first time you watch The Lion King, it's just a kuna matata and a nice cub. But the second time you say, now, wait a minute. Simba's suffering from imposter syndrome. He's got daddy issues and a host of other things. It's deeper than it appeared at first. Imagine scripture. 
Peter says, grow in the grace and in the knowledge. It's the same book, but it's not the same you that approaches the book. And so over time, we need to allow the scriptures to penetrate our hearts. How is that done? I want to give you some practical ways before we go into our last point to allow scripture to be more than just a book we read from time to time, but allow it to really change our hearts. Here's number one. Ask yourself the hard questions. When you read the Bible, ask yourself the hard questions like this. What have I read that needs to cause me to change immediately? You know, David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, what do I need to change? And I'm going to change it right now. I'm not going to wait. I won't delay. Ask yourself what in me needs to be changed and corrected based on what I've read. But not only that. Read larger sections. Psalm 119, 160 says the sum of your word is truth. It's, there are times when we should break away from our small bite-sized Bible reading and say, you know what? I want to take on larger sections of your word. I'm just going to sit down for an hour or two and I'm just going to take on the whole gospel of Luke. I'm just going to take on first Kings in its totality. Somebody says, Hiram, if I did that, I won't remember it all. I don't think that's the point. We need to allow scripture to wash over us, to put on coats of paint. And then we have all the time in the world to go back and drill down into various sections. But we need to take on larger portions to see the Bible from its whole scope, to see God's scheme of redemption running from cover to cover. Don't just read Ephesians one and two. Just read the entire book of Ephesians and watch it change you as you see what God's doing. Not only that, read for yourself. What does Paul tell Timothy? Second Timothy two fifteen. study to show Yourself approved, not them. Don't study the Bible just to prove them wrong or to go. You know, the next time I go to work, I'm going to be armed with ammunition. I'm going to know the passages. Study to show yourself approved. Don't read for them. Read for you. The Bible is for you to be changed. The Bible is not just a fortress to be defended. It's a mansion to be explored. And I want to know what's inside of it for myself. And that happens as I read for myself. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119 and verse penetrate our hearts if we resolve to do and not just discuss. It's one thing to talk about the Bible, but it's another thing to be a doer of the word. James one says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and fail to do the things I say? Luke six and verse 46. You see, scripture will change you when you resolve to do it and not just talk about it and discuss it. That's a lot easier. But the Bible says there's no blessing to the person that just merely knows a lot of scripture, has read a lot of scripture. God has reserved his blessing for the doer. Don't assume. If scripture would penetrate, penetrate our heart, we must not assume. Sometimes we approach biblical text and we say, I know this one already. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, don't assume. You've read it before, but maybe there are some things that you miss and we miss scripture's work that it wants to do on us and in us. When we come to the text is if prodigal son, I've read this one. I've seen this movie before, but slow down and don't assume that, you know, it as well as you think you do. Let it work on you and in you and change you. Don't play the hero every time. You know, we read the Bible and we say in first Samuel 17, I'm David. No, you're not. We probably are the scared Israelites in the back of the camp. We read Exodus 32 and we say, how could Aaron do that? But if you're honest, you know, in your life and mine, we've built far more golden calves than he ever did. Don't read yourself into the hero line of the Bible. The reality is we really know better than them. And scripture works on our hearts when we read the Bible and we say to ourselves, you know what? I probably wouldn't have been the shining star on this occasion. I probably have done things foolish just like Samson. 
I probably would have been just like the unbelieving disciples. And how many times have I been tempted or even followed through on selling him out like Judas? Don't read yourself into the hero role when you read the Bible. There's one hero in Scripture, the Christ from Nazareth. And we read the Bible well when we see ourselves not as the star, but as the role players who need saving. Scripture will penetrate our hearts when we acknowledge our desperate need for a savior. I need to be saved. Romans 7, 24 and 25. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from the body of this death? And here's the last one. Read it and rejoice at the promises of God as if they were written directly to you and for you alone. When you read promises about the forgiveness of sins, sometimes we get so caught up in the historical parts of Scripture. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in A.D. whenever. No, Paul wrote it to them, but Paul wrote it for me and received the promises of God as if they were written to you and you alone. All of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. These men need to know it on the road to Emmaus and it would have changed them and helped them. Here's the last thing. If we would be blessed by the resurrection of Jesus, we must proclaim the resurrection. After they meet Jesus and he straightens them out, he corrects them. The scriptures burn within their heart. They do what you might assume they would. Verse 33 says the same hour they go and find the eleven and they say in verse 34, the Lord is risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And then they go out and. Tell others the good news about in verse 35, he broke bread with them and he was made known to them in the meal. It's been said the times in which we live with technology, technology and the advancements of smartphones, that news travels faster today than it ever has. I believe the disciples in the first century might beg to differ when they heard the good news. They just couldn't keep it to themselves. What they do on this occasion is what all of them will eventually do. They would cover the world with the message that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Would you notice their simple three step method in verse 33? They find the people that need to know the information in verse 34. They tell them what's the reality. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then in verse 35, they say how it's made an impact on their lives and changed them. He broke bread with them and made himself known. That's evangelism. I don't know who this quote is original with, but it will never get old. It can't be improved upon. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The psalmist says, Come in here, all you that fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Psalm 66 and verse 16. And, you know, week after week, you see this happening right here at Lehman Avenue. Somebody brings a friend. Somebody brings a neighbor. Somebody brings a loved one. Because that's what's the the power of the resurrection is to share that good news with others. In fact, our resurrection experience is not complete until we share with other people. And until we can transition from guilt trip evangelism to where we feel so guilted and bad that we share the news to I'm so excited. And this is the best thing that has ever happened. And I don't want you to miss out on it. Evangelism is not just a command to be obeyed. It's a blessing to be received. And when we fail to share it, those that are lost not only miss out on hearing the good news, but we miss out on the blessing of sharing it and telling somebody else the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what these men do. And because of that. They change the world. This idea of something going viral means it's been shared on many platforms on social media throughout the world. There's some discussion about how many times something has to be shared for it to be labeled, quote unquote, as gone viral. Some people believe it has to be shared at least 100,000 times or a post can be properly described as having gone viral. Whatever standards they come up with by first century accounts, the gospel, it went viral. And sometimes we read about it and we think it happened overnight, but it didn't. It happened just like it does today. One person at a time, one invitation at a time, one conversation at a time. 
and lives are changed. Don't you think it's interesting that in the longest post-resurrection discourse that Jesus has with any of his disciples, it's not with Peter, it's not with John, it's not with James. It's with two men that we know nothing about. We only know one of their names, which is Cleopas. It's as if heaven was saying to you and to me, you will often find yourself here. And so let me give you people that you can relate to. If I give you Peter, you'll think he's a gladiator and maybe John the same. But you'll be here. You'll face circumstances in life when you look at everything around you and you say, I'm a loser. I put my hopes in the wrong basket. And Jesus says, remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You'll try to interpret scripture based on life circumstances instead of the other way around. And he'll say in Luke 24, remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I think it's impressive that Jesus reveals himself to them in the breaking of bread. Neil and I were running this morning with our friend Bob Turner. And he said, you know, that may very well be a reference to the Lord's Supper. And when we break bread, we see Jesus clearly and we see him in ways that we haven't. And that's interesting to think about. But here is one thing that we do know. The Bible ends with a feast. Isaiah 25 says it'll be a great banquet. Revelation 19 calls it the supper of the bride and of the lamb. It's as if God is saying to every Christian in the world who finds him or herself on the road to Emmaus, suffering with loss, discouragement and heartache and hardship. If you can just hold out and if you don't quit, I've got five words for you. I'll see you at dinner. God wants us to be with him. And that begins at the resurrection. Maybe tonight someone needs to be blessed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We first have to enjoy our own as we believe on Christ and are baptized and we're raised to walk in newness of life. The Bible calls that our resurrection. And maybe somebody already has. And you find yourself on the road to a mess tonight like Cleopas and his companion. Hopefully tonight's lesson has encouraged you. If we can pray with you, if we can pray for you, the invitation is not for the weak. It's for those who want to tap into the strength of God and his people with prayer. If this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now together as we stand and sing.